Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Craig from Acid Horizon. Just wanted to let you know that in February, patrons will be able to enjoy a difference and repetition reading group that we are facilitating on our Patreon account. If you subscribe at the $1 level, you'll be able to access all the recorded live streams. $5 and above will be able to participate in the live reading groups. We are going to do our best to accommodate listeners in Asia, Oceania, Africa, South America, North America, and Europe, and maybe even Antarctica. If we have listeners there, so listen to the very end if you want to get more details on that. Okay, let's begin. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. In the early 1990s, Jacques Derrida released The Gift of Death, his short work of religious philosophy, which is considered by some to be one of his most powerful and lucid pieces of writing. The book circumscribes various themes, most notably the nature of human responsibility, the grounding of ethics, and the radical singularity of the death of the individual. Moreover, the gift of death registers an important commentary of the ethical views of prominent philosophers, including Immanuel Kant and Soren Kierkegaard. On the show today, we have Will, Matt, and Adam. So first, there's some groundwork that I think is worth doing before we get into the discussion. I believe that having a cursory understanding of the source material for this work might be important to understanding what Derrida is up to in this book. So let's begin by recounting the story of Abraham from the Bible and then touching upon how the story is taken up by Kierkegaard as a model for his ethics. So, Adam, can you tell us a little bit what happens in the story of Abraham? It's already a miracle that Abraham even has a son, Isaac, in the first place. But one day, God comes up to him and says, I'm going to need you to sacrifice him. Go up, tie him down on the mountain, put a knife in him, just do it. If you, if you, if you believe in me, you'll do it. Abraham just... Yeah, I was going to be completely shocked at this, but he says, well, I'll do it. So he takes his son, Isaac, with a knife, doesn't tell him what's going to happen, goes up to the top of Mount Warrior, and then eventually Isaac says, well, okay, at least you told us he was going up to do a sacrifice, but you know, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, well, God will provide the lamb. Keeps moving up the mountain with Isaac. Eventually there's a pyre for the sacrifice to be burned after he's killed. He ties his son down to the pyre grabs the knife up, is just about to plunge it, and then suddenly God or an angel of the Lord shows up and says, don't, I've got your point. You don't have to sacrifice your son because you're going to give him to me. And suddenly Abraham looks around. There's a lamb, a goat, depending on translation, etc. Everyone's happy. Now, what Derrida wants to do here is to use this story to talk about what it means to be called by an other to be responsible for uh, for something. Something that one is responsible for in one's own way and in, in one's own secret way in which one decides to do it. And how that affects one's relation to the whole ethical world, the whole ethical generality, the whole of ethics as it surrounds you as someone who is also responsible to other people and you know, otherness in general, what you relate to as another person simply on a formal level. And it's through a discussion of this parable and through some Kierkegaardian notions of work as well that I think Will's going to talk about that uh, Derrida will try to pull out these paradoxes of what it means to be responsible for yourself in a moral way. 
So, Will, why don't you give us a little bit on the background here in relation to Kierkegaard's work, Fear and Trembling? So, Fear and Trembling is uh, essentially a text that tries to pin down some very basic problems with the notion of uh, Abraham in theology. And he's going to particularly attack this idea that Abraham should be considered either a just a tragic hero or a villain. He believes that this is an irreconcilable disposition that Abraham must have. And the first problem is essentially just asking the question, is there such a thing as the teleological suspension of the ethical? Which means that can one engage in what Derrida will call irresponsible behavior? Can one reject their responsibilities, the ethical, in sort of embodying the universal, right? So, he's going to say that in this sense, Abraham holds a very unique position of being both a murderer and the father of the faith, and that this is sort of an irreconcilable, a non, you can't mediate it. His problem is this idea that you can sort of mediate these things, that they can be brought into some sort of unity, because he fundamentally doesn't believe that that is the case. But what Derrida is going to spend most of his time dealing with are frankly going to be um, questions primarily pertaining to whether or not one has sort of an absolute duty to God, and then whether or not one has an absolute duty to disclose the notion of the secret. So, Kierkegaard asks the question of whether one, uh, whether there is such a thing as an absolute duty to God. Because one would think that your duty to God is to love thy neighbor as thyself. But what Abraham shows is that through his love of Isaac, that's the very thing that forced him to have to sacrifice him, to have to develop a sort of very particular hatred of him, a violent hatred. But in that hatred, he maintains his absolute uh, duty to God. And what Derrida finds fascinating is that Abraham never lies to Isaac, but he, he never tells him the truth. Every single time when Isaac asks Abraham, who will provide the lamb, he's sort of lying to him, right? The, the joke is like, no, like you're, you're the lamb, right? But he can't say that because of course, as Kierkegaard would say, well, then why don't you just simply not do it? The central notion of, of Kierkegaard's work here is to invoke this um, conceptual persona of the Knight of Faith, which is the individual who is able to, in a certain sense, teleologically suspend the ethical in pursuit of an absolute relation to absolute being, which would, would be God. And it's, it's a relation that Derrida sees as fundamentally non relational because you can't bridge the gap between man and God. And that's sort of the center of Kierkegaard's work, uh, sickness unto death is sort of this unbridgeable gap that only like the body of Jesus Christ can, can provide a sort of bridge to. So the central problem in fear and trembling, well, there's two would be the suspension of the ethical and then the disposition of Abraham, and then the representation of Abraham, particularly in Hegel. And Matt, this is your first blush with these themes, or at least in terms of the way that Derrida works with them. I'm, I'm curious, what was your 
overall take on this? And maybe you can give us a summary of what you thought the most important points were. So firstly, it, clearly it, it, it's all, um, you know, mystical obscurantist nonsense. Um, <laughs> um, no, um, I, I found it really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with some of David's work from, from, from before anyway. Um, this text was new to me. Um, I've read a little bit of Kierkegaard in the past, but I've always, because he's never directly related to any of my own research in a direct way, I found it hard to justify sitting through quite as much as there is of Kierkegaard. But anyway, um, <clears throat> there were some things which stood out to me. Firstly was the, um, the discussion of uh, responsibility and obligation, which obviously carries on throughout this um, chapter, um, which I found I found a really interesting sort of a- approach to it. Um, and it it reminded me a little bit of what you find in Levinas, and maybe that's not coincidental given Derrida, but um, this idea that we have a a kind of uh, the idea of an obligation to another, which at some point has to be decided upon against all the others, right? And that we can't really always explain, nor should we have to explain why we choose that one rather than any of the other ones. That that I found quite an interesting sort of approach to ethics, or I don't think it's about, about its problems. I thought that the the way, maybe this is more to do with Kierkegaard, and I'm sure Will will say a little more about this. I found some of the characterization of the Night of Faith quite worrying um oh yeah in in so far as it's it seems to be the individual who has at least at least the the belief that they have a a deep and almost personal relation with the absolute other the absolute god um etc and that this involves not only a a suspension of the ethical i.e you know becoming a murderer um as you know abraham does um but but one can't even really in any meaningful sense be held to account for this. Derrida has a really interesting discussion of what it means to be uh, responsible um, in this text. And it seems a part of that is that um, even having to sort of explain or justify oneself to be held accountable in that, in that sense is, is not part of a picture here. And so there's some worrying stuff there, but also a lot of very interesting stuff, I think on more on, more on Derrida's side, but how we think about, um, our obligations towards others, our relation to others, and how that influences our understanding of of what ethics is and how it fits into our actions, I suppose. Great. Maybe we will cover some of the core concepts that Derrida is working with here. I think the idea of Mysterium Tremendum that he kicks off the chapter with is a good place to start because it's through this concept of Mysterium Tremendum that we understand Derrida's notion of a secret. He talks about Mysterium Tremendum, this sort of numinous force that, I mean, is connected with experiencing a beyond or or having a spiritual experience. And he does an etymology of the word tremendum, invoking the definition of tremor, something that is felt in anticipation of something to come. Often tremors are felt as a an aftershock of an earthquake. And what Derrida says is, a secret always makes us tremble. And this idea of a secret becomes the notion or the concept that underpins the entirety of the ethics that he's developing here. He says that the secret always makes us tremble at what exceeds our ability to know it or apprehend it. So we're always kind of at the edge of a secret, not knowing what is on the inside, and it always gives us that sort of uh, sense of anticipation. And he also says that the, the secret can evoke a sense of terror as well. The one thing that I find really interesting in the beginning of this chapter here, chapter three of The Gift of Death, 
Derrida interrogates the possibility of there being a meaning for trembling. He even invokes science to say, like, hey, maybe someday we'll find out what the phenomenon of trembling is all about. And he questions the idea that, is the body trying to say something through trembling? Is there a meaning at all? Regardless, he suggests to me, at least in my reading of it, that we exist in a kind of liminal space when we are experiencing trembling. We fear and tremble before the inaccessible secret of a God who decides for us, although we remain responsible, that is, free to decide, to work, to assume our life and our death. We labor towards the salvation in the absence of a God, not in His presence, at the cusp or in the outer rim of a secret. We are made responsible to enact God's will while His reasons remain beyond our grasp. I think this is essential to go back to the night of faith. And this is the the fundamental difference between the tragic hero like Agamemnon and the night of faith is that the secret discloses itself to Agamemnon, right? Like he crosses the threshold and he has to take that action. But the quote from uh, problem two in uh, Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling is that the night of faith is kept in constant tension. He's always got to be, they've always got to be terrified. There's, There's always this sense of terror that must course through them because the secret is always held. It's it's completely fundamentally inaccessible. And this goes back to, to Matt's problematization of it. How are we to have any sort of discussion about the night of faith when we can only hear about the night of faith? And as you said earlier, Craig, in a conversation we were having before recording, we can never hear from the night of faith because even the night of faith doesn't know what's going on. So the, the secret is the fundamental issue both in the original text from Kierkegaard, but also the extension that you get in Derrida is absolutely crucial. If I make yeah, the secret that is really fundamental to the sort of the linguistic argument of this text and logical argument of this text, because I mean, you bring up Agamemnon; it's a perfect example because it's of the duties that he's you know, in the Oresteia. If the Furies are coming for you, they are an ethical power. They're not like the the monotheistic Abrahamic god who is always kind of absent. The Furies can be bartered with. They can be made into the kindly ones. They obey the laws of hospitality. God isn't really bound by any kind of law in that sense. And in that sense, there's something unsubstitutable about the thing that God gives you. You can't, bar- you can't really uh, barter with him. Although that being said, in the Old Testament, there are a few people who wrestle with either God or, or, or angels. You know, so there, there is a sense of that. But I think Derrida is trying to pull into the sense of Especially from the writing of St. of St. Paul that he um talks about here, of the insubstitutability of the responsibility that God calls you to. But it's only it, really this is the insubstitutability of the secret, because a secret cannot enter into a space of disclosure, it cannot enter into discourse by its nature as a secret, or at least in the strongest sense of a secret. And if it can't enter into discourse, it can't enter into chains of words that can be exchanged and substituted and bartered with in their own kind of symbolic exchange and linguistic exchange kind of way. They cannot enter into a structure. And I think the secret is this point of absolute singular insubstitutability. But there's also a a secretiveness, not only on the side of God, but on the side of Abraham too, because when he elects to make this decision, his decision to do this is is purely secret. He cannot put it out into the general world because then it becomes substitutable. 
get into this Kantian mode of, well, oh, can I universalize killing my son if God tells me to? Well, that's not God's will to everyone should do it. It's you, you here, take your, take your son up to that fucking mountain, raise him, and kill him. It, this isn't so much a Kantian universalizable maxim, and that's why it's so, it's not tragic at all. It's not like this forces he's trying to battle and he's, it never really turns out the right way. It's not like there's a third act where you think, oh, he might actually get away with this. No, it's he is sent solemnly to go up there and do this one thing, and he has to keep it secret. And I think, yeah, this notion of substitutability is what is going to take this out of the theological realm and into the realm of general linguistics and general ethics. Yes, and I, that, that's where I get along with it, I think, because um, I don't want to be dismissive. I might be a little bit by accident. Um, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in, in entering into a direct relationship with the God or the absolute or anything like that, right? Um, but there is something really interesting that I think about the, the notion of um, that, that this responsibility is, is utterly singular, right? But in this moment, Abraham is, is confronted with a choice that doesn't confront people in general or all of us or, you know, one of many of us. Um, it confronts him specifically, and he has to not only grapple with that, but he has to take on the total the total responsibility for it himself as well. And I think that's, that is a really interesting way to approach trying to understand ethics. If ethics is something to do with either how we ought to or how we might live our lives, we already live as part of a you know all these networks of relationships we have, then I think the notion that these choices, or at least some of them, have to be taken on directly and singularly and individually, that kind of gets you into that Derrida's sort of strange existentialism in this text. He doesn't seem to have that most other places, but Will pointed out this, this out earlier. There is a so- somewhat existentialist tinge to some of Derrida's interpretation here, I think. Yeah, like you make this choice and not all the others. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the, like you, by making a choice, by circumscribing all of those potentialities, you betray every single other uh other 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 you portray all the other others when i was a undergrad um and i had come across kierkegaard in class and i I wanted to write this paper sort of trying to tether kierkegaard to Deleuze, and my mentor (laughs) sort of joked with me in his disclosure like you're trying to freeze kierkegaard you're trying to bring him down to the ground but in a sense i think Derrida's trying to do this, but he's not really going to try to provide an atheistic reading of of Kierkegaard. Instead, what he's going to do is take the ethical implications and insert them into the social field. And for that reason, for that reason alone, I think this essay is a really fascinating contribution to Kierkegaardian scholarship. Um, Even if it's not intended to be that, uh, I, I think that sort of replication of a an ethics about sort of the open field and the responsibility to to the other and which in many ways reflects some of what you see in works like i and thou and in levinas um so i i think you're right in in seeing what derrida is doing here is is kind of more fundamentally existentialist than one would initially expect of of uh of our guy here yeah 
I, I think what he says is is quite important. I, I don't know. I got a hint of this a little bit in, in Matt's first comment in this part of the discussion, which was, well, maybe if I'm not so interested in Kierkegaard or, or religious thinking or something, somehow I'm I'm insulated from the the, the charge that that Derrida makes here, the charge that that Kierkegaard makes. If I'm not the kind of person who's inclined to maintain an ethical relation with the absolute, then I'm exempt from the argument that's presented here. And I, I know maybe that's what Matt isn't saying, but that that sort of thought kind of looms around the, this discussion for me too, is like, if you're not interested in religious philosophy, or, then where does this argument take you? What does it give you? You know, Matt, you had said earlier when we were chatting about it, like, what is the takeaway from this? Yeah. And I think what Derrida does in virtue of looking at the story of Abraham through the Kierkegaardian and the Kantian lens is that if we are to pursue the broadest implications of Kierkegaard's argument, what it tells us is that the pursuit of the absolute as an ethical priority demonstrates to us the nature of responsibility, which is this radical irresponsibility. And the question is, then, what is it that presupposes any sort of ethical choice whatsoever? And I think that's the biggest takeaway from this. Yeah, I mean, except but. but- but presumably part of the problem is that it's 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 through the suspension of the ethical that this pursuit of the absolute is to be pursued, right? That seems to be the problem for me. And, you know, I'm not that familiar with uh, Kierkegaard, so I'm, I may just be completely ignorant on this point, but that's where I have I have trouble because if the point is that part of part of ethics, if there is such a thing as ethics or whatever, is the way in which we manage our relation to to the other, to the absolute, whatever. That, that's really interesting. That's absolutely fine. But it, it seems it seems like Kierkegaard, at least, seems to be, he seems to, to say that it's through the suspension of ethics as this field which is subject to um, discourse, to public responsibility, etc., being held to account for your actions, etc. If, if, if you have to set all that aside for the night of faith, then I, I personally, I'm not left with much of that last bit. I'm interested in that first bit, but yeah, for me, that's where the, the, the problem lies, I think. Oh, you know, I think there's something that we need to address in order maybe to get you back on this boat, which is what Derrida is... Convince me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here we go. Uh, I think what, what Derrida wants us to see is, first of all, the, the notion of one's death, the possibility of one's death not being one's own. Our seeking of eternal salvation involves us giving up our death to a transcendent being, right? And so, for for Derrida, and I mean, even for Kierkegaard at some level, this is the greatest abdication of one's ethical responsibility is to give up the singularity of one's own death. And so, what that represents, or at least what that instantiates, is the the most extreme version of, of ethical abdication. Now, the question is, can one even give up one's own death? I mean, these are themes that are pursued in other chapters in the book. The answer for Derrida is ultimately, no, one cannot. It's always returned to you. Yeah. That being the case... Actually, I actually have a passage right here, by the way. Go yeah, for yeah, it. Like, if you yeah. keep in, in your head what you're about to say, like, let me just read this passage. Sure. Um, so, there's an amazing little um, short passage from this, this chapter where Derrida writes, um, Without knowing from whence the thing comes and what awaits us, we are given over to absolute solitude. No one can speak with us and no one can speak for us. We must take it upon ourselves. Each of us must take it upon himself. And in brackets, he said, um, he says, uh, to take on, as Heidegger says, concerning death, our death, 
concerning what is always my death and which no one can take on in place of me. Um, I, I found that a really powerful um, part of this uh, uh, chapter as well. Right. And so, in our attempt to give our death over to the absolute transcendent being God, what have you, what we find ourselves in is this this kind of double bind between an inability to give our death to the absolute and uh, an inability to answer to the ethical in our get, in our attempt to give our death to the absolute. And so then what does that say about the basis of ethics in general? Mm. Um, you know, and, and this is what, what Derrida is confronting here, like the, the notion of the generality of ethics being, okay, communicability, community, what have you. But what he's saying is, no, there's more to it than that. It's this actual irresponsibility, this inability to give to any absolute being, but then the broadest implication of that being is, well, every other being that exists, um, you know, not in the transcendent realm right here on planet Earth is wholly other in the same way that God is wholly other. So, our choice to give to anyone comes from where? Well, a place that 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 cannot be answered to mm. right that it comes from the, this locus of of decision that is ultimately unanswerable to anything other than itself yeah and i i wonder i mean i'm i'm not an expert in this area at all so i may, I may be completely making this up but could we read this as a maybe as a partial critique of levinas's ethics because it, it sounds like mm. where, where Levinas is going to say that ethics is grounded in our responsibility towards the other, and that this responsibility derives from something to do, you know, the face, right? That it, it, it communicates a responsibility and obligation on our part towards it. Um, maybe part of what David is saying is, well, even if that's the case, which, which other, right? Um, which of these others um, <laughs> is my responsibility too, um, and trying to problematize that a little bit. I mean, that's part of what this paper is about: is this notion that in any of these, um, I don't know how far we'd go with this, but presumably, at least in these cases where you know, you know, there's this trembling of the ethical choice before you, Derrida seems to say that you have to choose one of the others of the others, right? And and then these other others are, are sort of left, right? We've kind of defaulted on our responsibility to them. But at the end of the day, you have to sort of face that in yourself, take responsibility for it. You can't justify it necessarily. You probably shouldn't even try, but one of them or whatever will have to take the place. Am, am I completely off base there? What do you guys think? <laughs> Maybe we can sort of clarify this a little bit if we sort of run through Derrida's theological attempts to render this first, and then we sort of de-theologize, bring them down to earth to understand what it means for us more generally, how the aporia is met with us every day to day. So maybe the first thing you do is talk about the notion of the theological notion of sacrifice, which is inherently tied to for Derrida's notion of secrets, because sacrifice, like an edifice, something constructed out of the sacred, the sucker, the secret, something set aside for God, or for gods in, in the Roman times. But and this idea of sacrifice is tied to what makes it so paradoxical in Abraham's sacrifice, because just in order to kill his son, he must he must both love him and hate him to make it sacrifice. And the link between this love and hate is a common thread which will make this a non-theological notion, which is, un which is being un uh, unable to be substituted. It is a hateful thing to erase something that is unsubstitutable, purely unique from this world, and it is lovable in the same way that only in being loved does this thing become so unsubstitutable to the one that hates it and the one that sacrifices it. This thing is not general. This person is not, this person is in the same way as God that calls them to do the sacrifice. 
an absolute singular other to the one who sacrifices it. And in that sense, we have this power, this aporia that takes us out into discussion between ethics as a uh, realm of substitutable and possibly even calculatable discourses about what we should do, how it should be done, how we should be judged by our peers. And then the immediate relation of the absolutely different person or simply just a singular person that calls you to do responsibility, you know, to do something responsible, sorry, that calls you to do something for them, that calls you towards a duty towards them, you know, by buying a slightly fancier dinner, <laughs> uh, you know, for my friends is something nice, you know, just to, like an appreciative gesture for, you know, uh, getting through this fucking hell, hell world we're currently living in. I am also, in a way, sort of... <laughs> sacrificing loads of people because you know if i spend a little bit extra money on that that could have gone somewhere else it could have gone to another beloved person or another hated yeah, another beloved person who was unsubstitutable who could also call me to a further ethical duty you know it could go to uh, someone a bit more much more needy it could go to you know like a gift for a parent or something these are the elementary functions of making a moral decision in a sense, you do keep that moral decision kind of secret because it's always implicit that in choosing one other who calls you uh, to have a one choosing one duty to another, you sacrifice all the other duties you could possibly have. You know, and this I think later we get onto this. This is a question that the utilitarians try to offer, and in a way, it's by getting rid of this notion of sacrifice. And this is where the idea of taking away this absolute and putting everything into a realm of calculability and substitution. But yeah, so I just wanted to get out of the way so we can sort of push through what we're going to get for, sort of roadmap what we're going to end up doing. This is going to be a riff, what I'm about to say, but um, there's definitely a strong connection to Bataille in, in this work here, especially regarding the notion of sacrifice. And the, the point of convergence is the notion of instantaneity, that which happens at the moment of sacrifice. So when the lamb is on the altar, or in, in the case of Abraham, Isaac, but um, I like the example, actually, of an animal, because in, in Bataille's case, what the animal represents on the altar, or what they become on the altar, is this, this potential to reconnect with what he calls the imminent flow, right? We have the dagger raised above the animal, and in an instance, our eye connecting with the eye of the animal in the moment of sacrifice is the very approximation of the ethical priorities we are trying to achieve through the sacrifice. And then here in, in Derrida, the paradox of, of the ethics is that ethical responsibility cannot be grasped in time. There's an instantaneity of the decision that's made of any ethical decision to whom to give to, whether I take my friends out for the fancy dinner or I decide to stay home and make sure that I don't infect other people with COVID-19. The decision is irreducible to the, the presence or presentation of the decision itself and therefore it has what he says is an atemporal temporality. The decision can never be made simultaneously with the decision itself in view of the paradox. I cannot make an account of that decision. I can't make an account of the decision present to the decision-making itself. And I think this is the kernel of the ethics he's, he's articulating here. That example of COVID-19 is absolutely perfect. Because um, it is kind of like that. You are, you are literally sort of called by sort of the big other of the government so, you know, uh, to stay at home, and rightfully so. But you're called to stay at home individually, and then as soon as you start sort of going into the discursive realms of what the rules mean, you know, 
everybody starts finding a little bit of a loophole, a little bit of a bendy bit, and it's sort of right. <laughs> it's sacrificed. And then I mean, the government know this. That's why they they keep guilty of people in doing it. I mean, they could just pay people to stay the fuck home, but <laughs> yeah, but they don't want to do that. Um, but then, with all that money, they're going to go out and have a great dinner. It's a double bind of responsibility. They call you to do this, and they put you in a situation of being unable to do it by calling you into bloody shitty workhouses and well, places of what not workhouses, or soon, uh, and schools and the like. And at the same time, you are forced by this motion to go into the ethical realm of, of the COVID rules, and this is where it becomes substitutable. And that's where immediately it, it becomes kind of sacrifice. And I think. You know, this, this paradox that Derrida's pointing out, this, the gov- governments know this very well. This is, they know the paradox of singular versus general morality because they can single you out for, um, on the basis of the ethical, by the simple act of leaving the ethical there behind for, for their future access. And I think, sorry, it's just a great example. Mm. Oh, hey, I do my best. <laughs> How about Will? You want to jump in? Yeah, I think that this is the, the very nature of, the night of faith right like the night of faith just assumes the burden of the paradox that that that's it like that there there is there is nothing nothing else uh there's there's no argument to be made everything any argument that can be made uh must stay in secret right um i think the the line in in derrida is he must keep this secret you know abraham is merely a witness uh, to to the very um, the atemporality of this sort of act, this leap. It's it's not even like ascribing a very particular form of agency to it. Also also misses the point too. So I, I'm wondering then where we can go when uh, we talk about these sorts of because I, I don't know if the game of 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 uh the night of faith would be to even consider it like the notion of substitution and i i don't even know if that's necessarily where derrida ends up i think derrida too is is sort of ending in this state of almost uh, you know aporia saying that this is an irreconcilable uh reality of ethical decision making um and the question is what one does in the face of that paradox yeah, I return to the idea that we have never heard from a real night of faith. We've only heard of them. And everybody who comes back is, I, I was going to use the word predisposed, They're, they just come back into the community. Anyone who makes an account of their failed attempt to be a night of faith, well, that falls back upon the community in, in ways that are sometimes very profound. I mean, entire religions are based off of accounts of, I yeah. saw this, I saw that. And so forth. They're the sectarian knight, though, right? They're not mm. the knight of faith who's who accepts this sort of in its absolute individuality, uh, the, the absolute subject, the individual. There's another passage where David just says exactly what, what you just said, Craig. Um, I'll, I'll try and read it relatively quickly without being incomprehensible. But he, he writes, There are also others, an infinite number of the innumerable generality of others to whom I should be bound by the same responsibility, a general and universal responsibility, what here God calls the ethical order, i.e. the ethical order to be suspended in a pursuit of a relationship with the absolute. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> I cannot respond to the call, the request, the obligation, or even the love of another without sacrificing the other other, the other others. Every other one is every bit other. Everyone else is completely or wholly other. 
the simple concept of alterity and singularity, um, so otherness and you know their, 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 spe- their specificity of these others to whom we owe an obligation, constitute the concept of duty as much as that of responsibility. And as a result, the concepts of responsibility, of decision, or of duty are condemned a priori to paradox, scandal, and aporia, which are not themselves nothing other than sacrifice, the revelation of conceptual thinking at its limit, at its death and finitude. Um, so Derrida, you know, he, he does think that this is a kind of necessary aporia, a paradox, right, which we can't necessarily find um, an answer to because it, it, it is a paradox, right? Yeah, and he's but he still burdens you with the entirety of like all of the ills that the social field will face. Yeah. It's it's almost like that, you know, that um, that Sartrean burden where you know I am responsible for all of history. Yeah, you know, every single historical moment I, I bear the weight of, and it's again, I think I think uh, both you and Craig are right to say that like this is a strangely existential Derrida we're getting. Yeah, I and mean, it it seems. My, my sort of reading of this is that it's, it's a kind of meditation more than it is an attempt to provide an answer to. Um, this problem which we, we face in ethical life of trying to navigate, navigate our responsibilities towards people in general and specific people, right? Um, which you can see much of moral philosophy from Kant to, you know, um, utilitarians, Mill and so on as, as different um, attempts to try and respond to um, is you know how do I understand my relationship, my ethical relationship to the other as a specific person, you know, as this person or that person or this other person, and to the other in general, all the others, right? Utilitarian offers you one way of thinking about it. It, it as as both Craig and Adam said, you know, there's elements of sort of sacrifice, but also of a kind of commensurability, right? But there you can, in principle measure and exchange and add together these different numbers, right? Utilitarianism. That's one way of trying to perhaps confront this more fundamental paradox of, of ethics. We find Derrida here situated in between sort of a long-standing and still continuing debate on how we think through notions of inconsistency and contradiction notion to theology. I mean, Derrida said, I mean, when I was reading this, I was mainly thinking of uh, someone like G.K. Chesterton, you know, famous for his theological paradoxes. But I think this this is a modern debate that's still going on. I mean, uh, I, the book that comes to mind is um, Zizek's book with John Milbank, which is essentially one question: paradox or dialectic. And I don't know. I, I'm not sure. If, I'm not too sure if this is a paradox, to be honest, because the presupposition of the absolute singularity of each one is only really achieved by a kind of calling from the outside. It doesn't really treat much of the subject's relation to its own responsibility. Responsibility always comes from outside of it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I'm not going to, I can't do a whole bloody dialect <laughs> critique of this so far, but I just want to sort of leave like, this is a bit of a wider theological debate. Craig is right to pull this back in to, to sacrifice because there's a, Maybe maybe I'm being like silly here, and maybe like this is sort of a, a hyper emotional reading of this. There has to be a fundamental difference, and maybe this is like the Levinasian in me trying to do this. But there's got to be a fundamental difference between me failing to, or me failing, or being irresponsible in the broader social field to all the other I don't know dogs <laughs> in the social field when I feed my own. Um, versus that moment of 
of sacrifice at the altar where like my eyes meet the the lamb or the goat or whatnot um and it is only in that moment that 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 I am able to recognize as the figure in this moment the the nature of that interaction of that relation and it's and it's almost atemporal but also fleeting, so it's very strange um you know I think I don't know I just I want Craig to go back to that the the bataille thing because I think I just I there's something there, but I, I can't quite get it. And there's on page 78, there is a slight allusion to this possibility of bringing in the Levinasian critique of Kierkegaard. Well, well, here's, here's the final passage, which brings us straight back to it. Straight, it could bring us straight back to this point. Um, uh, Debbie Doe writes, and I, I, lo- I loved this passage. Um, I don't know whether I agree with it or not, but I certainly loved it. Um, uh, Derrida writes, as soon as I relate, I, I enter into a relation with the other, with the gaze, look, request, love, command, or call of the other, I know that I can respond only by sacrificing ethics. That is, by sacrificing whatever obliges me to also respond in the same way, in the same instant, to all of the others. I offer a gift, I betray, I don't need to raise my, uh, my knife over my son on Mount Moriah for that. Day and night, at every instant, on all the Mount Moriahs of the world, I am doing that raising my knife over what I love and must love over those to whom I owe absolute fidelity incommensurably. That, that for me is the, what I, I, I thought was one of the best parts of this chapter and bring us straight back to this question of first of sacrifice, but also of ethics in general and this problem we're trying to grapple with. I think at the base of this, and maybe to get back to the Bataille thing, is, is maybe to talk about a Nietzsche thing somewhat, which That's is... always okay. Of course. I mean, I wonder to what extent the notion of guilt has been unaddressed here, because mm-hmm. that which pushes us towards the absolute and to to give up one's death is essentially a failure to affirm our life and our life as being an impending death. And it seems to me that when we talk about, you know, the ethical generality escaping the ethical and moving towards this transcendent absolute duty as our priority. I mean, it seems to be a task that either always fails or becomes unknown to us in this world. You know, perhaps there is a night of faith. I don't think we will ever know about that person. If everyone is wholly other, as Derrida is saying, and we pursue our pursuits in life, um, with the notion of guilt surrounding, oh, and I mean, people do this all the time. Oh, I should be working out more. I shouldn't be eating this chocolate chip cookie versus, oh my God, here I am sitting with a stack of philosophy books and I'm just, you know, burning the, the midnight oil here on Fallout or whatever it is I'm playing, right? And that ethical question looms in the form of guilt all the time because what it is is a failure to affirm choices that we're actually making in some sense, right? And it seems that the the ultimate form of that, in some sense, is to give up on one's death, to imminentize one's death in the sense of, I hate to use the word being comfortable, but situating ourselves in a sort of Heideggerian way, right? Like a being towards death. And, and maybe it does mean a, a sort of equanimity or you know, this, a song Freud disposition towards yeah. our oncoming death as being the the sort of base ethical priority, not the Levinasian one. I mean, to think of another religious figure who conducts a similar sacrifice, I like to, you know, the, uh, the saint who's been most popular during the lockdown uh, periods, if we have a state competent enough to do lockdowns, um, is, is a Julian of Norwich, who is a cloistered monk who 
completely cut herself out from the outside world, and she sought to give her death over to over to over to, to her God. And I think this this is something you know both it's it's this tension between the theological and the realized. But just to go back to sacrifice and the notion of death, uh, Derrida says uh, at one point he says absolute duty as that which is Abraham is called to uh, absolves him of every debt and releases him from every duty. Absolute absolution, which can be read in the immediate way as um, God absolves you from everything, so you can do it do what he wants. And this is true because I mean. In relation to debt, God does not say to Abraham, he doesn't say, you owe me. He says, take your son up to that mountain and kill him. There's no notion of debt here because there's not really a notion of substitutability. You can't, you're not exchanging really anything of God. It, it's, it's a gift of death in the sense that gift is not, it's a one way exchange, which is an entirely paradoxical entity for, for Derrida for sure. And for people like Plotinus who Derrida is drawing from, but. That is why only an absolute other can demand it. That's the paradoxical nature of the thing. And at the logical level, negation is working differently in this notion of sacrifice because the sacrifice is the creation of a not, the thing you're sacrificing. Not X, not lamb, not son. It's a total loss. You can't substitute anything before the not. It's It's a pure expenditure. It's not exchange. You're not clearing away any debt. You've just been told to do it. In the same way that you know the sun may call life into being, and eventually this life will shit itself and die. Inherent to any ethical commandment, I mean, in the case of, of Abraham, it's just go up to the mountain and kill your son. There's almost a commandment embedded within the command, and Derrida talks about this, is that there's a compulsion to be ethical, even in ethical discourse, when he talks about, oh, you're a philosopher you should write about ethics. It is your duty to write about ethics. And so, to, to hear the call of a discourse and to respond to it presupposes our duty to respond to it. And I think in the case of Abraham, this is the sort of maximal example of that. Yeah, because the, the very temptation is what we perceive the universal to be in its immediacy, right? Which is the ethical. Right, uh, like all things material are universal to the ethical, but for Abraham, the ethical is actually just another temptation. Right, I want to be a good dad. I don't want to cut my son's throat open, you know. Um, but instead, he has to suspend that. Um, and it's t- to me, Derrida's ability to sort of um, take that and reformulate it in such a way that rather than it being the call of the ethical, it's instead the call of a presupposed discourse, right? You are a philosopher, therefore you must have a political ethics or something like that. This is what the force of guilt is trying to do. It's to make you to want something else that you don't want and an inculcation of new desires. I guess I can rest my case on that, but I think the ethical more more broadly is precisely about that. It's about which discourse has the most Power in terms of being able to compel an individual to participate within it. And I, I think one of the reasons why I, I find this text quite difficult in, in, a, certain, in a certain sense is that um, Dodo and Kierkegaard are both very clear that the pursuit of this relation to the absolute is the sacrifice of ethics. It's not that we, in, in pursuing the absolute, we have to learn a new ethics, or that by doing ethics, we gain a relationship to the absolute, whatever this happens to be. Um, you sacrifice ethics in order to 
had this relation. That I find is challenging. I disagree with him, but, but that's, that, that's fine. But I do, I wonder, you know, Craig, you, you brought up Nietzsche and maybe, I mean, Adam had a few thoughts on this as we were chatting before the, before we hit record. Um, one thing that stands out to me and, and will feel free to weigh in as well, because I know, I know you have, you know, a lot of thoughts on Kierkegaard. When I read this chapter, particularly the sections where, where Derrida, um, references Kierkegaard pretty, pretty, you know, strongly, um, if Nietzsche was reading this, you know, or if we were to act for Nietzsche and perform, what, what would he call it? Like a psychosomatic reading, right? In other words, like, look at the emotions that are being conjured in, in these sections. There are three key emotions, I think, um, particularly in relation to Kierkegaard. Fear, trembling, and hatred. Love is mentioned quite frequently, right? Love is the thing which mediates the hatred, basically. Even when we hate, it's only really out of love, right? Um, and I, I, when I read those sections in, in, in this chapter, um, it's not really Derrida saying this, I don't think. I think it's more, more coming from Kierkegaard. That to me seems like a summation of a lot of what Nietzsche writes, particularly in the genealogy of morals, right? That one of, one of his main accusations against Christianity is that it, it dresses up a fundamental hatred of the things which actually exist, um, as being a kind of love for it, a concern for it, right? So I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what, what, what you will think about this. That's something that stood out to me reading this chapter was that there's three sort of emotions, affects, whatever coming out to me from this. And they come up over and over again. It's fear, trembling and hatred. And that, that worried me a little bit. You know, there's a grace note in the first part of the book might even be within the first three or four um, paragraphs, where Derrida talks about the pseudonymous authorship uh, by yeah. Kierkegaard, he does a little etymology of the pseudonym and the patronym. And upon reading that, that like I, this is probably the third time that I've read this, this essay here, and that really stood out to me this time, because often if you take like a Nietzsche and Kierkegaard class in college, mm. or an existentialism class, often Nietzsche and and Kierkegaard are contrasted with one another yeah. on the basis of Nietzsche, he's the uh, unabashed author of all of his works, whereas Kierkegaard chose a pseudonym for all of his different mm. works, right? And, and, and maybe you've come across something like yeah. that. And in, in this rendering of that here, I mean, even though he doesn't address it specifically in those terms, it seemed interesting to me that the, the whole notion of a patronym is something that doesn't even become apparent until a pseudonym is brought into play. And so, it's almost as if the dyad between the father, the patronym, and the false, the pseudonym, that conjunction is created in the obscuring of one's own name, of one's own desire, through a kind of guilt, through a kind of hatred. Mm. Yeah. And so that's that would be the sort of beginning of the Nietzschean inquiry for me. I, I think too one thing that that gets overlooked, and this was uh, certainly something that 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 I because like I think uh, sickness unto death is anticlimacus. I I don't even know, right? Like that's a big deal, right? Because these are all the characters that get exposed in the Corsair affair, mm. and there's a huge. There, there was no one really talks about the, you know, the names under which Kierkegaard wrote, but it's important. It's an important context because, you know, one needs to wonder, you know, how much, uh, how much we can actually attribute anything to Kierkegaard himself, or whether or not these are presentations 
by invocations of Kierkegaard. So, you know, th- these are all fascinating questions. One thing I wanted to say in response to uh, your your comment about Nietzsche, Matthew, is that like I think you only have to get like twenty pages in to like thus spoke Zarathustra to get on what is it on the teachers of virtue where there's the preacher who's trying to get you to get a good night's sleep, right? <laughs> like it, it's it's these teachers of of virtue that are preparing you for um for some sort of being towards death. There is in a certain sense a sort of strange life denial that you get um in some of Kierkegaard that I think Nietzsche would probably ping him for um but at the same time i i do think that this notion of the suspension of of the ethical as it relates to the social is not necessarily something that you know knowing the nietzsche of the genealogy he'd fundamentally problematize it would just be also where kierkegaard ends up right kierkegaard is still you know, fundamentally a dogmatic Christian and so on. Uh, so for that reason, he's bound up in this very strange virtue because even at the end of the day, God is still all good in, in like the pure Platonist Aristotelian Christian sense. God is all good. We literally can't comprehend him. And that in itself is a strange sort of um, delayed uh, or undisclosable ethics. The story we're reading is only a Christian story in terms of retroactive forces that have seized upon it and given it that meaning. You know, we are looking here at um, part of Genesis, which is a book of we 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 would call it the Old Testament, yes, but that's only retroactive in reality. It's, it's a Tanakh, you know, it's a Hebrew Bible, and I don't know if they, I don't think this Nietzschean Christianity-based critique is you know Nietzsche's main target in the Antichrist is um, it's it's not really it's not Jesus, it's it's Saint Paul. Yeah, and I think this notion of hatred, hidden hatred, yes, a hidden hatred, yes, that lies underneath this system of guilt, of debt, of exchange, is brought in to subvert the mastery impulse, which Nietzsche thinks is inherently quite a stupid one, but he thinks it's somewhat more in touch with itself and a bit more honest, but nonetheless not as smart nor as interesting. And and I think that in in suspending the ethical, this system of Resentment or exchange of guilt is is completely gone. It's 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 with a view towards the absolute, similar as a view towards an eternity, not a recurring eternity. And then you know, in that sense, well, is it an eternity? No, it's actually no, no, no. He's not even offered eternity. He's offered Abraham has only ever offered um, the same thing he got with Isaac, which is uh, earthly existence and generational existence. It's not even eternity. It's it's a purely earthly bound existence he's being offered. So I don't think a Nietzschean critique would, would really apply this much to this, unless we retroactively read it backwards in a Christianizing manner, at least in terms of the story of the Binding of Isaac. Sure, but I, 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 I do think, if I, I just want to say this then, because I'm, you know, this, this is my reading of David and the way, you know, the way he at least presents Kierkegaard, and again, as somebody who isn't that familiar with Kierkegaard, I kind of have to you know, hope that David does doing a decent job of you know, presenting what's going on here, right? Um, on, on, on page 64, um, he writes, and it's not clear whether this is him or Kierkegaard, it's a little bit ambiguous. He writes, I must sacrifice what I love, I must come to hate what I love. In the same moment, at the instant of granting death, I must hate and betray my own, that is to say, offer them the gift of death by means of a sacrifice. Not insofar as I hate them, that would be too easy, but insofar as I love them. 
um, I must hate them insofar as I love them. And that, that for me, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's, it's possible I'm operating like a, you know, some sort of uh, like a lower register here. Um, but for me, there's, this is sort of the, the, I can't imagine, uh, you know, someone like Nietzsche reading that and then going, um, you know, actually, this is really quite, you know, fulfilling. It, it, it's the same problem as you find in a lot of, that he identifies in a lot of his own works, right? Um, so maybe, maybe I'll, I'll leave it there. Like, it's not like I don't find anything of use at all in this text. I find a lot of, you know, really interesting, really powerful stuff, which I think I've discussed so far. But, you know, if, if you were taking a kind of symptomatic reading of this, um, the notion of having to sacrifice and grant death and to hate the things that we love, Demis says it's shocking and paradoxical. I can't get beyond the shocking and paradoxical. <laughs> That's probably what it is. Yeah, but that, that, that you're, you know, and, doesn't and want us to. <laughs> it's okay to stay yeah. there, right? Like that—that's that's where where we have to stay. Um, I. <laughs> but I do want to push back on this idea that we're, that when we talk about this stuff, we're only retroactively applying sort of a a uh, Christian film to it. Because two two things, Derrida makes it explicitly clear that that, that he's gonna try to place abraham back at the, the the center and leave him as the father of of all faith but also leave him as a murderer but then for kierkegaard what's crucial is is luke fourteen twenty six, right um this sort of uh any man cometh who doesn't uh hate uh his own father his own mother and so on uh can't can't be with me right he can't roll in my crew <laughs> um that is is fundamental to to the paradox as it pertains to Abraham the way in which Kierkegaard uh contextualizes Abraham's love and hatred of his son and as Kierkegaard says any scholar of of biblical text will immediately know that that's from the New Testament and that's what makes it unique is that there's this sort of strange punishing and super violent hatred being commanded of followers and it's in the new testament it's in light of of the unending grace of jesus and so on um so i in in those two senses i i do think that the way in which both derrida and uh kierkegaard contextualize the abraham story or what have you Once again, thank you for listening to another episode of our show. As I mentioned, if you want to get some more details about our upcoming reading group, two places to go. One is subscribe to our Patreon account. We will be putting out new information on the upcoming reading groups this week. Additionally, most of us are active on Twitter somewhat or a lot, so find us there. Also, here's another request to anyone who might be interested or if you have any good leads. I am in the process of migrating Crit Trip, Acid Horizons merch store. The changes that I am currently making will ensure that the products are higher quality, even the labor is a little bit better. But what I'd really like to find is a Solidarity Union printer. So if you know somebody great, please recommend them to us. If you are them, please reach out and contact me. I've had a really difficult time finding somebody to work with, so I'm looking forward to that interaction. We have an upcoming episode on PC music, and I can't wait to do our show on Friedrich Engels, which is coming soon as well. In the meantime, don't stop sharing with us the great books that you're reading, the great ideas that you're encountering, and stay on the acid horizon.